think it's, a, it's appropriate that this happened today because we are talking about the church, about the body of Christ. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open them up to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible with you, there are some Bibles underneath the benches. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can count that Bible as our gift to you so that you can read the Word of God. If you're using that bench Bible, that pew Bible, we're on page 977. Today we're continuing on in our series and we'll be reading verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. Let's read these together. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, today I want to pray for your church, the body of Christ, many whom are sitting in this room today, Lord. I pray that you would strengthen them by the Holy Spirit which you have caused to dwell in them. I pray, Lord, that they would be continually encouraged by your gospel, that the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, wasn't just how they came into the faith, but Lord, it's how they thrive and grow in the faith. I pray, Lord, this for the sake of their own individual lives. I pray this for the sake of their families. I pray that for the sake of their church. And Lord, I pray it for the sake of the world. Because in your wisdom and your foreknowledge, Lord, you have ordained that the church stand on this world as a visible picture of your grace. That we are, are trophies of Jesus Christ, of what he won on the cross. Father, may we live in such a way that people cannot doubt the words that come out of our mouth. And Lord, that they would praise your name in heaven as a result of our deeds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to Ephesians chapter 4, we, we find that there is a transition happening in the book of Ephesians. What Paul does in many of his writings is he divides his work in half. And oftentimes in his writings, the first half of his letters is what we call orthodoxy or right thought or right belief. And then the second half of his letters is what we call orthopraxy, right behavior, right actions. So when you read a whole of Paul's letter, Paul is saying, this is what you should believe, and this is how it should affect your life. There's right belief and there are right actions. So chapter 4 begins that transition where Paul is moving from a right belief, a right doctrine, what we need to believe as Christians. He's moving from that 
to now saying how we ought to live as followers of Jesus Christ. He's moving from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. So since that's what Paul is doing, I think it would be very beneficial for us to review where he's been in chapters 1, 2, and 3. One of the things that we do in the youth ministry whenever we are studying the Bible, if we're reading a passage, if we're reading a paragraph, or we read a book, one of the things that we try to do is we try to summarize what we read in, in, the, in the smallest amount of space. So if we read a paragraph, we try to summarize it in a sentence. So that's what we're going to try to do uh, with chapters 1, 2, and 3, is we want to summarize it in just a few sentences. What is Paul saying that we ought to believe? Because we don't know how we ought to act until we know what we ought to believe. So this is what Paul is saying that we ought to believe. He begins in chapter 1, where Paul tells us that we, his children, have been predestined by God, that we have been blessed by God, that we've been adopted by God, that we've been redeemed by God, and we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. We see that in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Then down in verse 13, In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit who acquired a pos- <clears throat> which is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what chapter 1 is about is what God has done for you. God has saved you out of his great love for you. That's good news. When we move to chapter 2, Paul tells us what we were saved from. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, And you were dead in the, trampath- in the trespasses of your sin in which you once walked. So he said, Before God lavished his love on you, you were dead spiritually. And you walked in the ways of this world. You walked in selfishness, trying to, trying to meet all the passions and the desires that rose up in your stomach. And he tells us in chapter 2 also how he saved us. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man, no one may boast. So God saved us by his lavish love. He redeemed us. He sealed us. He adopted us. And he did that while we were sinners. And he made us alive in Christ. He breathed new life into us. That's what chapter 2 is about. At the end of chapter 2, around verses 18 to the end of the chapter, he tells us that when he breathed new life into us and he adopted us as his sons and daughters, what he did is he included us into the family of God, which he is building up into a temple. He is uniting every person who calls on his name into the body of Christ so that they are one. That's at the end of chapter 2. In chapter 3, what Paul is doing is he is telling us the purpose for which he is uniting the body of Christ. Why is God adopting us as sons and daughters from our sin, pulling us together in the body of Christ? Why is he doing that? According to chapter 3, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now be known. So basically the whole purpose or part of the purpose of God calling us together 
as a church is so that the world might know who he is. The whole purpose, or part of the purpose of him calling us together is to be a witness, a testimony to this world. And then at the end of chapter 3, what Dave covered last week is that's where we are. He said, we've been saved. We've been saved from our own sin. We've been saved into a body of Christ. And now what Dave talked about last week is how that spirit which he has caused to dwell in us, that has sealed us for our inheritance to come, that spirit is strengthening us and growing us into the image of Christ. That's what last week was about. And so we see a picture, we see a a pretty good picture of where Paul, where the Apostle Paul is going when he gets to chapter 4. It's important because chapter 4 begins with therefore. As a result of everything in 1, 2, and 3, therefore, this is what we're about. And what he is about is the unity of the church, the purposeful, gospel-called, spirit-empowered, missional unity of the church that the church of God exists for a certain reason, and we ought to behave in a certain way as as a result. We see this is is true in John chapter 17. So you can write this down. It's John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. What God is doing with his church is is the church is supposed to be a city on a hill that can't be hidden. The church is supposed to be uh, salt in this world where people can look at the church and basically through the, the worthy, living, selfless love of the church, the world might know that God is true, that Jesus is his son, that Jesus died for our sin and is creating a new being in us. The church ought to live in such a way that the world can see that and respond to it. That's what, that's what Ephesians is saying And that's where we're going in chapter 4. But this is also what Jesus said in his last prayer for the disciple. Just before Jesus was arrested, Jesus was praying to God the Father in John chapter 17. And this is what he says in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. He's saying, I'm not only just praying for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying for you and me. And this is his prayer for us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the purpose of the church. In the New Testament, they had all sorts of miracles, people being healed, the dead being raised, Uh, The lame walking, the the mute speaking, the deaf hearing, that was happening in the New Testament. And part of the reason that was happening so much in the New Testament is that it was evidence that what the apostles were teaching was true. What that looks like in the church today is is that the unity of the body of Christ should be so, so beautiful, so selfless, so life giving to each other so that when the world sees the church, they believe in the gospel message. The church is God's grace to the world. And the visible unity is so unique and should be so unique that it can be assigned to the rest of the world of the truthfulness of the gospel. Think about it. 
the members of the church should be marked by a selfless, by an otherworldly selflessness. That we should be not considered with, we should not be so consumed with our own needs and our own passions and our own desires, but we should be looking out for the needs of the other. And that is so different from the rest of the world. The rest of the world teaches us that your life is about achieving your desires and your passions. That's what this world teaches us. It doesn't take long. We're coming into the Christmas season. Watch a commercial. If you have this, this gadget, man, you will be a different person and you will find happiness. You watch a movie, you watch a chick flick. If you just had this relationship, man, you will be so happy and your life will be worth living. And the world looks at all of life and all the relationships in those eyes. Why do we date according to the world? We date other people because, man, when we're with that other person, it just feels so good. It does. You know, the first time you hold their hand, that first kiss you get, just the exhilaration and the adrenaline that you have is so wonderful. And so America and our world has fallen in love with this euphoria at the beginning of a relationship. That's what the world says dating is about. The world says that marriage is about you being happy. That the reason you find your soulmate is so that you can be happy and so that you can become the person that you are meant to be. That that person is going to make you a better you. That's what the world tells us. I've heard people say in counseling that, that their children are the constant in their lives. That, that they are so glad that they had kids because... Their kids are their rock, and they lean on them, and they go to them for, for love. And so sometimes the world says that's what children are for. It's for you. What ends up happening is, is those children are crushed underneath that weight. They can't bear that burden. So the world tells us that life is about your passions. They say that work is about getting money so that you can buy whatever your heart desires. They say, they say that that, uh, that people in relationships, and they don't say this overtly, but it's very true, that people in relationships, every person is either a vehicle or an obstacle to get what you want. That's, what, that's the way the world operates. And so if you have somebody and they are just really encouraging you and they make you happy and they give you good gifts and they help you get what you want, you use that person as a vehicle to get what you need. However, on the other hand, if that person gets in the way of what you want, they become an obstacle, and then they receive the, like a full force of, of your anger and your animosity. That's the way that the world thinks. It is a, it's a selfishness. That's where we all were. Before Christ, we lived in that sort of selfishness, where our life was about our passions. And every now and again, you will have a church that fails miserably. And many of you have been in churches like that where you've been wounded by your church. And you say, golly, this, I'm not even sure if I want to be involved in organized religion, in the organized church anymore, because of the evil that I've experienced there. Know this, that the failure of the church is not a failure of God. 
It is not a failure of the power of Jesus Christ. The failure of the churches is not a failure of the Word of God. But churches fail and churches wound people whenever we cave into our old man and go back to the self-centered ways of the old man. So today, what we want to do by looking at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4 is we want to look at how it's supposed to be. What is Paul calling us to do as a result of the lavish love of God calling us into his family, as a result of us being a part of the church of God who is supposed to be a city on the hill, how ought we now live? That's what chapter 4 is going into. That's what it's talking about. So I think... Two, and I got, I got a two-point sermon today because that's good because I went long on my introduction. Got a two-point sermon today. All right, unity. The unity of the church is a byproduct of living in a manner worthy of our calling. The unity of the church is a byproduct by living in a manner worthy of our calling. It says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What Paul is saying is as a result of what God has done and what he has called us to, we ought to live in a certain way. And so now our question is, what does a life worthy of our calling look like? How ought we live? And I I just picked three different things this morning to work with that, that we can see in the passage. And here are going to be my three subpoints. So it's, it's two points. It's got some subpoints, so it's, it's really got a lot left. All right, so three things we ought to do to live a life worthy of our calling. We have to die to ourself. We must look to Jesus for our supply. And we have to operate in the Spirit of God. All right, and I want to stress to you that these things are not progressive. Like, I'm going to start here and work through these points. Whenever we accept Christ, these three things, the death to self, seeing our supply in Jesus, living in the fruit of the Spirit, once we accept Christ and we're in his family, boom, that begins immediately. Now, when we're young, baby, immature Christians, it happens on a small level. But as we grow in our faith, we see that we die to ourselves more. We see that we see more of our supply being met in Jesus, and we see more of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. So oftentimes we get discouraged because we're like, man, I'm not seeing it in my life. I don't see any fruit. I'm still self- selfish. You know, no, it, is, it can be a slow process that you see over the course of your entire life, okay? So don't, don't be discouraged by that. So let's look at these individually. First of all, we have to die to ourself. Paul said that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul said, it's no longer me who live. It's not about me anymore. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm a prisoner for Christ. Dying to self, what Paul is talking about, is a constant theme throughout the New Testament. Look at these verses. Um, I'll read them out loud. I'll give you the references to write down. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Luke 12.24, And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Romans 6.11, so that you may consider yourself dead to sin 
and alive to Christ Jesus. Galatians 5.24, For those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have crucified the flesh and its passions and its desires. If you read through the New Testament, through the Gospels, through, through the letters, what you will find is time and time again, the call for the followers of Jesus Christ is to die to themselves and to live for Christ. And, and, and this can be easy to say and hard to do. So let me give you a, a, a parallel passage that points to how, how we can start to do that. The parallel passage is like two pages over in your Bible. Um, if you're using the Black Bible on, on eight, uh, 981 in the book of Philippians. And when we read Philippians 1 and 2, we almost see a mirror image of, of the book of Ephesians. Because you can see in 127, Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So walk in a manner worthy. Why? Because you've been unified is where it goes to next. Why? Because you're a testimony to the world. So right at the end of chapter 1, we see, we see the book of Ephesians summarized in one paragraph. But then in chapter 2, he tells us what it looks like to die to yourself. He says, this is what it means to die to yourself, that you no longer look after your own interests. You no longer consider yourself as more important than others. Those are things that you do. And he said, also, the other thing that you need to do is, is you need to look to Christ. And you need to have about you the mind of Christ, who though he was in the very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Jesus humbly obeyed God and served God at the sake of his own personal welfare and health and life. That's what Jesus did. And so if we want to die to ourselves, those are the type of things that we need to be involved in. We need to be giving of ourselves to others. And so I could ask you the question, who are you serving? Who are you pouring your life out into? We need to be pouring our life out into somebody. Otherwise, what we're doing is it's, it's a good indication that we're just trying to fulfill our own desires. You need to be loving others. You need to be pouring your life out into others. And then it's a beautiful thing. I love it. It's like God knew human nature. In Philippians chapter 2, after he talks about who Jesus is, he's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is what he says. He says, as you're going about pouring yourself out to others, he says this, verse 14. This, this is convicting my soul. He says, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Oftentimes what we like to do is we like to serve other people. We like to pour out into other people, and then we like to complain about it. We like to gripe about it. We like to say, woe is me. Look how much I'm doing. Can you believe that this person is receiving all this generosity and they're not giving anything in return? What the Apostle Paul is saying is if we want to die to ourselves, we have to pour our lives into others, and we shouldn't complain about it. and We shouldn't grumble about it as we do it. Jesus wasn't found grumbling on the cross, but he fully poured himself out in love. So we need to die to ourselves. Something else we need to do um, in, in, in walking in a manner worthy, and this is very related to dying to yourself, is we need to find our supply in Jesus. We need to find our supply in Jesus. So if we are dying to ourselves, the only way that we can die to ourselves and the passions that live within us, the only way we can do that is if we replace those passions with a greater passion. 
And that passion has to be Christ. Think about this. We kind of went through a list in the introduction about how the world thinks and the way that the world operates. And we said that marriage in the world is all about happiness. But when we are in Christ, we find that it's not our spouse that makes us happy, although they do, but our happiness is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus supplies our happiness. So in our marriages, when there is friction, we can love and give freely because our happiness is not resting on that other person. When we look at children, the world sometimes says children are a constant. They're going to love you no matter what. They're going to be there no matter what. Your children aren't going to abandon you. And so we look for them as a constant or a crutch in our lives. But once we come to Christ in faith, we find that Jesus is our supply. We find that Jesus is our constant. Jesus is our rock. So we no longer need children or other people in our lives that we have to cling on to for our sanity because Jesus is our sanity. When we look at our job, in the world, job is for money. Money is for buying things, right? But in Christ, we have everything we could want or ask. Read Ephesians 3.20. He has given us and supplied everything we could ask for or even think of. That's how generous our God is. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ. So what our job becomes, it becomes a way for us to get wealth so we can generously help others, and it becomes a platform for ministry where we can tell others about the joy that we have. Relationships in the world's eyes, in the, way, the world's operation, people are either a vehicle to get what you want or an obstacle to get what you want. Once we accept Christ, Christ is what we want. And now we can now view people and look at people and say, man, I'm going to love you. And I don't care if you can help me or if you hurt me, but I'm going to love you because I have what I need in Jesus Christ. Do you see how, how dying to yourself and having your supply in Jesus work hand in hand? You have to have both of those there. If you are trying to die to yourself without having your supply met in Jesus, you're going to be that grumbling, complaining, miserable guy. Because what you're doing is you're dying to yourself and you're not replacing it with anything better. You have to have death to self and complete satisfaction and supply in Jesus working hand in hand. The other thing Paul says in the book of Philippians chapter 4 that we need to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is that we need to operate with new fruit. Let's read it again. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All those traits that he just mentioned right there, humility, gentleness, patience, love, all of those things are fruit of the Spirit. And what Paul is saying is if we are going to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, one of the things that we need to have in our life is the fruit of the Spirit. So if, if you want to turn the other direction from Ephesians to, Ephesians, to Galatians chapter 5, where Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And this is what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ, in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says in Galatians 5 verse 16, 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he goes on to explain the desires of the flesh. But then, in verse 22, he picks up with the fruit of the Spirit. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, once again, here's the dying to yourself, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And this is important. Ignore that chapter 6 there. This is Paul's full thought. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Watch, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Jump down to verse 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So what we have here is, is Paul's progression of thought of saying, man, if you're going to be crucified in the flesh, if you're going to walk in the Spirit, this is what it looks like. And in the same breath as him mentioning the fruits of the Spirit, he talks about the necessity of community. The same breath. He said, walk in the Spirit. This is what the Spirit looks like. Therefore, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them. And you who are spiritual, you need to keep watch on yourself. And you need to love one another and bear one another's burdens. So he says there's this connection between the fruit of the Spirit and living in community. And my challenge for you this morning is to find community. And you might say, Stephen, look at me. I'm here. I'm in community. But guys, you need to have a greater community than just Sunday morning. Tell me, when you... If, if all you do is come to church on Sunday morning, all you do is walk through those doors, come down, sit down, you have a couple minutes to, to greet people, do you have an opportunity for someone to come to you and say, brother, I saw you sin, and I want to encourage you to repent. Can that happen on a Sunday morning? Can, can you really get to know somebody well enough to know what their burdens are if the only community you have is on Sunday morning? Not really. We need, we need more community than that. You, and we have small groups in the church. I encourage you to find a small group. The brochures are underneath the benches. Find a community and invest your life in them. If you say, Stephen, I am so busy. I got kids in sports. I got a busy job. My, my wife has a job. Find a community where you can include your wife and your kids. They're out there. Uh, I, I'm a part of one. We, we rotate watching each other kids. Uh, and it's, it's both a miserable and a glorious thing, all wrapped up in one. Uh, but find a place where, where you can be in community. Sunday morning, the only community you have right here, if this is it, you're going to be susceptible to the enemy. And you're going to be weak in your faith. You need community. All right, so that, that was point one. Second point is this, uh, and this is a short one. Thank, thank, thank the Lord. All right, Ephesians chapter 4, he says this in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. This is the point. Christian unity exists because we have more in common than we have different. Christian unity exists because we have more in common with one another than we have that is different. D.A. Carson, in his book, um, goodness, I forget the name of the book, but he said this. He said, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs. I'll even add in their common rank or anything else of that sort. Christians can come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ, and we owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. And I would add to that, not only for Jesus' sake, but for the sake of the world. When we walk in a manner of the worthy of our calling, when we give of ourselves, when we find our supply in Jesus, when we, when we uh, walk in the Spirit, and when we focus on what we have in common, we can be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We can be the church that God has called us to be for the sake of the nations. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your love, for your generosity. We thank you for the church. Though sometimes we are we're an ugly bride, we are your bride. And you are in the process of making us beautiful. Father, may we be the type of bride that that seeks to be beautiful for you. May we adorn ourselves with righteousness and holiness and unity to seek your pleasure, to seek your face. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church of God, you have been saved by the gracious power of our Lord Jesus Christ that he wrought on the cross. Go out and be the church. Die to yourself and live for his kingdom. You are dismissed.